All right, so once again, thanks for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody that's here and also all those listening on our podcast channel. Now, a quick recap from last week where I believe Pastor Joy was teaching us that God is so pure and holy that nothing can be in his presence that's not holy. But thankfully, because of Jesus Christ, that all changed. So tonight, we're going to be wrapping up our study of the book of Exodus. Specifically, that means we're going to be talking about the second half of chapter 39 and then also chapter 40. Now, in order to properly finish our study of this book, we need to remind ourselves of some of its high points, some of the things that we've talked about and covered, uh, what they are and what they represent, because they really apply to the ending here. So, for example, we've talked about the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, the Altar of Sacrifice, the Wash Basin, the Tabernacle, the most holy area of the Temple. Each of those things represents something very important. Each one of those things play a role in modeling the church, the, the groundwork that God was laying for his people in the world, and in most, more specifically, the future Messiah that would come into the world. So for starters, we know that God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, right? Remember that story. The people of Israel were being held as slaves, and through a series of plagues, God freed them by his mighty hand. The purpose of the plagues was to show that God was all-powerful. And that the gods of the Egyptians meant nothing. They had no power whatsoever. Then God leads the, leads the Israelites into the desert. He provides food, water. He clothes them. He takes care of their every need. Then he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the law was to show how sinful people are and show how continually short they fall of God's standard. Basically, you know, God's appears for his holiness. Everybody else is down here. Now, a great example of this, how our sin separates us from God, is if we think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. All right, one bite of the forbidden fruit, of the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, and what happened? They were kicked from the Garden of Eden, right? And to further make a point of how offensive their sin was to God, God places an angel at the entrance to prevent them from ever coming back. And God places something in that angel's hand. It's a flaming sword. It's almost like having bullets that are on fire. And it, it was so serious, right? Their sin was permanent, right? They were forever separated from God in that because of their sin. Their sin was so offensive, it would cost them their lives to try to get back into the Garden of Eden. So this is really stuff, serious stuff, and God had a plan to fix all that. But his plan was not going to involve people simply walking back up to him as they were. Their sin was going to have to be addressed. This is where the tabernacle comes in. While they were in the desert, God, God gave them very specific commands on how to build his tabernacle. Instead of God letting the people build swords and shields and anything to protect themselves from their enemies, remember, they were just simply living in the desert. They were nomads, right? God had them get to work building a place of worship in the desert. And these commands involved what to build, what materials were to be used, who was to build it, how big it was supposed to be, how small it was supposed to be. Then, once it was built, where was it going to be placed in the tabernacle? But that's not all. The entire structure had to be portable. They had to be able to put it up and take it back down and carry it with them everywhere they went. It was to be a mobile place of worship. No matter where they went, no matter what was going on, that was going to now be a permanent part of their lives. It was central to their existence and their relationship with God. But here is the key. This is the big why that God commanded them to do all this. The tabernacle, in conjunction with the law, 
together, we're meant to show the people their sin and then also provide a way for the people to work on that sin to get back into a right relationship with God, to get back in his presence. And the significance of this was that it was the complete opposite of the Garden of Eden. Right? When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, again, he placed an angel with a flaming sword to prevent them from ever coming back. Right? That was permanent. He was forcing them away right? because of their sin. That was the situation. Now with the law and the tabernacle, God is laying the groundwork for his people to come back. Right? It provided a pathway. But in order to do that, they're going to have to address their sin. Right? And that's, that's the big picture of what's happening here tonight. So as we finish out the book, we're going to see that the tabernacle is now finished. It's done. Right? And Moses is going to, he's going to inspect it. So it's inspection time. Right? It's time to see if their work is up to par. Or if they cut corners. They think, well, I don't want that here. I think this should be here. Nice little couch and love seat. Or, something. Right? or if they followed it to a T. So let's start by reading in chapter 39, verses 32 and 33. Chapter 39, verses 32 and 33. Starts out with 32. So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its furnishings. So while you know it seems straightforward, again, this is a really big moment. God had freed these people from slavery. He provided them food and water in the desert. He called these people his own and then gave them very specific, very specific instructions on what to build and how to build it. And within those commands, there were very serious warnings. Because if they didn't use the, if the priests didn't use the wash basin when they went into the holy area, what would happen? They would be struck dead. If anyone went into the holy, holy areas when they weren't supposed to, what would happen? They would die. Right? So it's not like they're building a vacation home or a tiny house or this is a big deal. This is the actual place where God himself would come and reside with them, right? And the risk of death was real if they didn't address their sin. They were never completely healed of their sin. So now presenting this tabernacle for inspection was going to be a big deal. This was huge. Who knows if they would have been given a second chance? No, no, you didn't do the right. Go ahead, take 30 days, fix it. It doesn't address that. We don't know. This was huge. Now, one uh, commentary I had read uh, estimates that it took about five to six months to complete everything. All right? Now, the next several verses, verses 34 to 41, just simply describe what we built. And we've talked about those things already. So I want to jump forward a smidge to verses 42 and 43. Because now it starts to give us the information we're looking for. This is what happens next. Verses 42 and 43. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw they had done it just as the Lord commanded. And what's it say? So Moses blessed them. So what we see here is important and it very much relates to us and what God wants from his church even today. So first, we know God gave the Israelites the command to build this tabernacle, but the tabernacle, this command, was not like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were for personal behavior. They were related to God calling you out of your sinful life. Right? It basically, God was directing you 
to look at you. It was almost like a mirror. Think of it. It's meant to show you who you are and your personal sin. That's the purpose. The tabernacle was completely different. It's bigger. The tabernacle represents God living again amongst his people. So the commands for the tabernacle are going to affect how people see God and their relationship with God. The tabernacle reflects God coming again together again with his world. So while the mirror is showing us our true selves, the tabernacle is like a mirror of God and his relationship with the world. Right? That's why it's so important. That's why God gave very specific commands on how to do this. And now Moses is going to come inspect things. And the inspection is important because of what the uh, tabernacle was created to do, what it was about. It's going to affect the relationship between God and his people, let's be honest, for thousands of years. Now, you can may well sit there, if you know church history, you can say, well, the tabernacle doesn't exist anymore. The temple doesn't exist in Jerusalem. How does it affect me? You know, and that's actually a good question. Well, it affects us, first of all, number one, because we're still studying it, aren't we? It's still in the Bible. We read about how it was built, why it was built, and what its purpose was. And here's what is important. Having that knowledge leads us to better see how God wants his church to be even today. Remember our church and everything, everything we do here, I mean, look around, every song we sing, everything should reflect our relationship with God. It should teach people, outsiders, a little bit about God and who he is. All right, so I want to pause. I want to say that again. People today, just like in the Israelites' time of the tabernacle, outsiders should see that and get a picture of who God is and how our relationship is with him. And that's very important. That's why this is a big deal. That's why Moses is going to now inspect this because it's going to have such an important impact throughout history. And then what does Moses find when he does the inspection? It tells us that Moses inspected the work and he saw that they had done it just the way God commanded, right? They nailed it. They did it to a T. They hit a home run. It was good. They, the, they saw the law and how their sin was affected. They didn't turn and run. They didn't try to hide things. And so because of that, when God gave these specific commands for the tabernacle, they followed his commands. They did it just like they were supposed to. They wanted to become more holy and come close to their God. All right? So interestingly, the text tells us that Moses saw they did a good job, and so he blessed them. Now, the biblical definition of a blessing, it's a, it's a pronouncement of happiness, fulfillment, prosperity, and a close relationship with God. Now, you've also probably heard there's a priestly blessing that a lot of pastors and priests, a lot of, typically in traditional churches, say is from Numbers 6. Now, the text doesn't tell us the exact blessing that Moses offered, but it's quite likely it was very similar because he did eventually say this. Now, and I want to recite it to you. But I don't want you to listen to it and think about it from the stance of someone sitting here in a nice air-conditioned church in Florida where people vacation in 2022. Right? I want you to think about it as though you were an Israelite, just freed from slavery. You're nomads in the desert. You have no home. You have no Nation, you're, you're, you're a small band of people trying to get by in the desert. You have no allies. You have no one to turn to. And now you're learning about your sin. And if you get too close to certain areas of this thing you just built, you're going to die. This is big. I want you to listen to these words from that standpoint. From number six. 
This is Moses giving this, them this blessing from God. He says, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you. May he be gracious to you. May he look upon you with his favor. And may he grant you his people, his peace. And see, that's a heartfelt blessing. And that's a beautiful thing that was pronounced on the people that day. Imagine being in that situation, having no homeland, going through all that, and now you hear this from your God, the creator of the universe, who's now going to reside with you. That's a beautiful thing. That's exactly what it's meant to be. There is hope. God is with them. He's in your corner. And that's why when the Israelites, when they made everything just as they were supposed to, that's why God blessed them. He called them to do a work, and they responded faithfully, and he blessed them. Now let's move into chapter 40. This is going to be the last chapter of the book of Exodus. And verses 1 through 29, they, they describe simply how they put everything together. Right? Tells how each piece, the lampstands, the curtains, the ark, the altar of incense, was put into its final place. And while the structure, when it's set up, now the rules start to become into effect. Before, when they're building things, it's just individual pieces. It's not that much of a big deal. But now we're going to see when they all put it together, it's one unit. Now everything comes into effect. Now it's the real impact. So let's start off reading actually at verse 30. Verses 30 to 33. And I want you to keep in mind, they had put everything together. Now it's set. Now it comes into, into play. Verse 30. He placed the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar, and he put water in it for the washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. And they washed whenever they entered the tent of the meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. So once, once the wash basin is placed and water put it, is put in it, what's now required? Whoever approaches it and wants to go past it must do what? Wash ceremonially. Right? Otherwise, what will happen if they don't? They pay with their life. After, this is interesting. After the basin is put up, the water is put in, they wash. Now what happens? Moses starts putting up the walls, the courtyard walls. Everything is now being sectioned off. The public is now further and further out. The reality of our sin is not just words and an idea that was coming. Now it's all, it's a reality. There are real physical barriers, excuse me, barriers here. But while that sounds heavy, and it is, something really, really good is about to happen. And as we read this, remember what the, got the Israelites to this point. The law showed them their sin. Right? The instructions for the tabernacle were the blueprint for how to begin to address this sin. And when the Israelites responded, God responds back. And let's see how he responds. It's actually in verse 34. After they did this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Because the people were faithful, because they recognized their sin, because they were diligent in following God's plan, God responded. And how did he respond? His spirit came within the temple. His glory, his, his awesomeness, his amazingness, all the big words you can think of, filled 
the tabernacle. His presence was there. Remember, the people not too long ago were slaves in Egypt. No hope, no freedom, no future, no homeland. Now the creator of the universe is in their presence. He's blessing them. He's residing with them. He's going to lead them. He was their God. He's their God, and they are his people. Everything is really starting to come together. So this is a really cool time. But even now God is with them, their sin still remains. It's never permanently gone. And this is true for each one of them, including Moses. Let's continue reading verse 35, and you're going to see what I mean. Verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So now that God's presence was there, not even Moses could go in. Every single person was barred from entering that place. But that wasn't the end point. God was going to use his presence to do something further for the people. Again, in addition to providing a pathway to deal deal with their sin, he was going to use his physical presence to literally guide them through the desert. Let's read verses 36 to 38. Starting at verse 36. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift... They did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in sight of all the Israelites during all of the travelers. Now this is really good stuff, and it highlights today even how God can be gracious to his people, even when they still have sin, because let's admit, they still had sin. And let's do a recap of Exodus when it comes to sin, because the Israelites certainly had their share. When God first rescued the Israelites from slavery, you know, great day in the Israelite camp that day. God was very popular, let me tell you, right? They were very excited. But what happened after they left and they came to the edge of the Red Sea? The text tells us the Egyptian army and Pharaoh came after them. And they all started to cry out, God, why did you do this to us? Why did you bring us out here to die? We were happier as slaves. But what did God do? He parted the Red Sea. He saved them. Go a little further into the desert, and they start to run out of food, water. They get very hungry. They get very thirsty. And what do they start crying out? God, why did you bring us here to starve in the desert? We had so much food as slaves. We had so much food. We just sat around, and there were bowls and bowls of food. Why did you do this to us? What did God do? He provided for them. When God called Moses to the top of the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments. The people are like, man, he's gone a long time. What did they do? They built a golden calf, and they bowed down, and they prayed to it. But did God turn his back on his people and leave them ever completely? No. He kept his promises. We see over and over that God was merciful. He was patient, wanting to forgive, mostly having a, wanting to have a relationship with his people. So the book of Exodus shows us that. And that even applies today. That God loves his people. He's always patient, wanting us to come back to him. Back then it was through the law and the tabernacle. Today it's through his son, Jesus Christ, and the church. Back then, when people didn't know which direction to go, God would lead them through this cloud or for a pillar of fire that was above the tabernacle. Today, we have his word. We have the Bible to teach us and guide us. Now, I'm going to pivot for just a second and start to focus on Jesus because in reality, all of this points to him. Everything starting with what happened in the Garden of Eden, 
then Abraham, then Moses, the law, the tabernacle. Each piece shows us our sin, but yet how faith, when we respond, we grow closer to God. And if you take each piece that God added over the next couple thousand years, we see God was laying the groundwork to smash that separation that existed between us and him. Now, myself, Pastor Joy, Pastor Craig, we've taught from Exodus over the past couple months. And each time, each time we see, again, the penalty for coming too close to God before Jesus Christ, specifically the temple, was what? Was death. I mean, and I've said this before, you guys know, technically, you can walk up here and you can touch that and nothing happens. Back then, that was not the case. It was the exact opposite. Once the holy place in the tabernacle was established, that was it. The tabernacle also had an outside wall that intentionally kept people out. Imagine if we put up a fence all the way around the property. And the only people that were let in were members of this church. But then, you had to be at least on the worship team to come past here. And the worship team's pretty cool, but they got to stay on outside of this. And yet, only Pastor Craig can come over here and do this. That, remember, that was their system. That's all they knew. That was the system before Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, two things happened that forever changed things. Number one, his death became the once and all sacrifice permanently. The altar of sacrifice that the Israelites knew was out of a job. It was done. It was no longer needed. Then number two, because of his death, our sins were permanently atoned for. There was no more need for the wash basin. Right? That too was out of a job. Our sins were gone, washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. So everything that kept us at bay was now fixed, was now atoned for. That's what makes Jesus, what he said on the cross right before he died, so much more important, so much more special. Let's read that. It's from John 13, verse 30. Jesus said, It what? It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. His words, it is finished, meant that the damage that was done by sin, the separation that had existed between humanity and God for thousands of years, started with Adam and Eve and that flaming sword, right? All of that was gone. It was done. It was complete. Jesus completed the work that God the Father started thousands of years before. He was the perfect sacrifice. And by his, law, his life, he fulfilled the law perfectly. That's what he meant when he says, it's finished. Everything at that point was finished. And because of his sacrifice, there were, another, there were two things immediately occurred that were very special. Number one, right before Jesus died on the cross, there was two people with him, one on each side. And the one on his left had actually said, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Right? And Jesus responded with, today... You will be with me in paradise. Now, this is bigger than you think. How could a criminal, and the criminal by his own admission deserved to be executed for his crimes. He deserved that. How could he bypass everything else? He wasn't an Orthodox Jew who knew and observed the law and did all the sacrifices and ate all the food. He did all the stuff. He didn't do anything. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a high priest. He was nothing. 
We're talking about a common criminal who deserved execution. How did he bypass all that stuff? Because he believed in Jesus Christ. He believed. His dying request was that Jesus, the Messiah, remember him in his kingdom. His faith washed away his sin and allowed him to enter a place that Jesus called paradise. That is cool. That is powerful. The second thing that happens on Jesus' death that's just as important, it tells us the temple curtain was torn in two. Now, the temple curtain was this huge thing. I was like four or five, it was huge, it was thick, and it protected the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. So again, you can kind of go, you know, certain places, but only the high priest could go past that. When Jesus died, it tells us that curtain tore in two, physically tore in two. And that event physically and spiritually showed there was no more barrier between God and his people. At that point, because of Jesus' sin, that barrier was gone. There was no more need for it. Now, after Jesus died, he rose again. After he returned to heaven, he gave his disciples, his followers, a task, a job to do. And that was to spread the good news to the world. And that good news is that through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, all sins can be forgiven. And that makes a lot of sense to us. That is really good news. But back then, for a period, there were people still used to the old system that when they heard that, they're like, well, that sounds great, but are you sure? Because they were used to these barriers. And there's a little, actually, there's a little evidence of this. A very cool example happened in Exodus chapter 8. It happened with Philip. The, the setup goes, is this. Philip was sitting there enjoying his afternoon. And an angel came. An angel of the Lord came and told him to go to this one particular deserted road. I want you to just go. So what does Philip do? Puts down the TV remote, whatever. Gets up and goes exactly where he was told to go. And as he's walking up to that place, he sees this fancy chariot. And inside of it is this guy who's an Ethiopian who's described as being a eunuch, and he's reading something. So Philip says, oh, that's the one. He runs up alongside of it, just like this. And when he gets there, he hears the Ethiopian guy reading something. And he's hearing him reading, and, he's, 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 and what he says is, he's reading aloud, he's reading about something where it says, a sheep is led to the slaughter. Philip asks him, he's close enough now, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, not really, unless somebody explains it to me. Do you know what it means? And Philip goes, I know what it means. And so Philip hops up in there, and we don't know for how long, but then Philip explained everything. Explained the law, the tabernacle, the need for sacrifices, the whole setup, and then shared the good news of Jesus Christ. That all sins can be forgiven through him. Now, the reason I'm telling this story is because of the Ethiopians, his response. This is what he said. It's in Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's some water. What prevents me from becoming baptized? Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us. A lot of people read that and it slips by. But back then, he was used to what? The tabernacle system that had walls, very serious rules about where you can go. It's just like it's not like you walk in here and a priest goes, uh uh uh. This was a big deal. Jesus changed all of that. And this guy, he's literally asking, What's stopping me from doing this? 
Are you serious? It's just this easy? I can just do this? Nothing's going to happen? And again, that may seem like a strange question, but that was the world they knew. And the beautiful thing is, they stopped the chariot. They got out right then, this water on the side of the road, and Philip baptized him. Now I want to pause for a moment because this, this is the definition of what the gospel is about. A person hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. A person knowing they're sinful, doesn't know what to do, and they hear the good news and, and they want to be baptized. They want to believe. They want to belong to Jesus Christ. And then nothing stops them from taking that step. That's what this is about. That's why this is here. And what's interesting is it has nothing to do with a denomination. There's no special prayers. The water didn't have to be blessed first. There weren't any special robes. It was the exact opposite of the tabernacle system. Everything had been taken care of. And remember, as we read through the book of Exodus, we saw God give what? Very, very specific instructions on what to build, who was to build it, how they were to build it, where it was to be placed, and no, you can't come near it, only this guy and maybe him, but they got to do all this stuff first. And if they're wrong, guess what happens? This is, this is huge, right? That was a system before Jesus Christ. But now Jesus, he fulfilled all that, and none of that was needed. So here we have a man saying, well, what's to stop me? And the beautiful answer is nothing. Not a thing. Absolutely. Stop. Hit the brakes, wherever the brakes are on a chariot, and let's do this. And that's what they did. Before Jesus, sin kept us from God. Now there's an open door. And remember, there's no works that you need to do. There's no special prayers. There's no amount of money. No denomination controls that. It's simply faith in Jesus Christ. And that's good news. But believe it or not, there's actually there's more. It gets better. When we get to heaven, when all things are complete, and we are with God, Let's read in Revelation 21. You're going to see what I mean. It gets even better. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 23. This is John talking. He says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So this verse from Revelation tells us that in heaven there won't be a temple, there won't be a tabernacle, there's not going to be a church. You know why? We're going to be with God. He is the church. His son is the church. There won't be a sun or a moon. You know why? Because all the light will come from them. That's the perfection. That's the end. We'll have complete communion with God. There's going to be no more separation, no more walls, no more tears, no more sorrows. We will simply be in heaven. We can worship and celebrate in God's presence. And that, that's what the good news is about. That's why we study the book of Exodus, because it's really, really good. Now let's, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, after completing the study of the book of Exodus, how can we do anything but offer you praise and thanks? You alone are the architect of our salvation. You laid out the plan thousands of years ago to repair what we humans broke. And that was our relationship and our communion with you. Tonight, Father, we, your people, we offer 
our thanks and our praise for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. He is the beautiful completion of your work. Because of him, we have hope. Because of him, we have a reason to celebrate. And we ask humbly that you continue to make this church a bright spot in this community, that many other people come to know him, that all of us here will continue to grow in our faith, and that this church will continue to be a bright spot. Father, again, we say thank you. We love you. And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. <laughs>